0: Hey, everyone. uh Very sorry for the delay. My last episode on men and masculinity was posted in March, and it is now currently June. I guess you could say in that time since my last episode, I have been going through quite a bit. Uh, a lot of it has been good, a little bit of it has been bad, but for the majority of it, it's been pretty darn good. I don't want to get too specific with the details, but the gist is, um... Well, I'm no longer a virgin, and I... <laughs> have a a great, great new sense of confidence in myself. I actually was in a romantic relationship as well for about a month and a half, two months. Things ended amicably. Everything's fine. Uh, it's just circumstances and school and life, things just got in the way. So it's almost as if the person from the last episode and the person from this episode are, in a way, two very completely different people. And that's what this whole podcast is about it's about recording my progress recording my thoughts seeing how i grow i i think this is a great gift to myself this podcast um not a gift for you was it wasn't meant for you it was meant for me it was my project that that i want to do and i'm doing it so uh yeah th- things are i I, f- I feel i feel good i knew that this would be the year When things change for me, and would you look at that, things have changed. Anyway, enough about this, on to the show. Hello, you're listening to Space for Rant, a stream of self-consciousness, where we cover topics from the mundane to the taboo, from the distant to the deeply personal. I'm Jacob, your host. It is truly wonderful to be back, and I say that somewhat sarcastically, because in the end, sitting down and recording a topic, as, as time goes on, I realize I'm running out of topics, and it's becoming more of a chore. I mean, the, the two months I spent, or however many months it was I spent not uploading something was months where I was doing other things and progressing through life, um, and <laughs> even then, not many topics to talk about that uh, I want to talk about, but today it's a very, very good episode—or well, not a good episode necessarily—a topic that I hold near and dear to my heart. We're gonna be talking about space. I—I I love space because when you when you think about it, but also not when you think about it because it's just true regardless space outer space deep space whatever is beyond our little biosphere we live within is space that's everything else space is basically like a hundred percent of everything we just live in this tiny little bubble we're so insignificant and space oh, okay woo, space i love. Mm. you know you can step outside look outside your window See the clouds in the sky? Like, if you got nice thunderclouds, cumulonimbus on the distance, you see the way that they billow up into the atmosphere, and this, they're just huge, massive clouds. The, the sky just seems to go on forever, and lightning flashes, and it lights up the whole cloud in this gorgeous display of Mother Nature. The scale of things is its just so immense here, on, on the surface of this planet. And I mean the scale of things within the Earth and on the Earth. I'm not even talking about beyond. Weather patterns and, and ocean currents and earthquakes and mountains and volcanoes and forests and cities. Huge an unbelievable scale that, that we've been able to build things and discover things. So while I really appreciate the insignificance that we have in the grand scheme of the, uh, the universe, we are pretty damn significant just within our our little planet. We have made so many changes to the way that we live. We've built cities and massive structures and industry and roads. We've torn down natural habitats we've dumped unfathomable amounts of carbon dioxide and and other gases and chemicals into the atmosphere we are changing the atmosphere of this planet at an unprecedented rate humans are incredibly powerful what we've been able to do in such a short time you know if we if we don't end up killing everybody. We should, we could be unstoppable. I I just wonder how long it would take for us to reach reach beyond earth. We already have some space probes that are that are beyond the sun in a way, and I think that's something I have uh, to talk about later in the episode. But it's it's just so humbling, daunting, terrifying, amazing to feel so small on this planet, and then the planet feels small in the universe, and you just feel extra small, but then you got to think about the next level, what's smaller than us, you know, you get down to microscopic level, your, your cells, microscopic life, pollen grains, and then you get smaller than that, your individual molecules and chemicals, and then you go beyond that, atoms, and then subatomic particles, and then, as far as we know, I think that's kind of where the limit is. What's the limit on the opposite end? What's the biggest we can get? I don't know. It's just a question. I'm, I'm just asking questions, you know. I think humans tend to have a, an intuitive sense of... Physics. I mean, like, classical physics, classical mechanics, thing, things of, um, planetary size and of human size, you know, you throw a ball up in the air and it comes down, you, uh, you drop a bomb out of a plane and you can, you can know when to release it so it lands and hits its target, you can figure out the way that, um, things are, are orbiting other bodies, um... You, you could look at the orbit of Pluto and say, Hey, that's a little funky. Uh, there's probably another body in the solar system that affects Pluto that we have not discovered yet. You know, a, a ninth planet, a planet X. Classical mechanics. Classical physics. Then you look even smaller, okay? Then you get quantum physics, quantum mechanics. And sh- shit just stops making sense, okay? Okay. You got photons moving at the speed of light. You got quarks. You got one flavor of quark that's like 30 billion times heavier than the next flavor of quark down. Why, why, why is it so massive? You got W and Z bosons. Well, those are kind of funky. What's up with that? Then you, you can only... And there's gluons that hold quarks together. You get three quarks together, two up quarks and a down quark, you you get a proton. Okay, but think about this. You can't have um, two up quarks existing like in the same spot or something like that. All right, so how is that possible? How how do we have a proton if there's two up quarks that can't exist? Well, okay, you gotta give them another property. Uh, Chromodynamics, okay? So each of the quarks in a proton has a different color charge. One's blue, one's red, and one's green. And you can't have two greens or two reds or something like that. They got to balance out. The The rules that we've put on these quantum sciences, it just, something seems goofy. And they know that there's something goofy. The standard model is not complete. And they know that. And they know something is going to mess this all up. We're going to discover something one day, and this whole thing is going to be thrown out. There's the muon wobble that um, I think Fermilab is studying. The um, the way that a certain muon is supposed to rotate or spin or wobble, it's not the right number that they expected when they measured it. So now they have to go measure it and say, oh, we might discover something new. That's pretty exciting. But that's at the small level. What about What about space? Space is a huge level. Isn't stuff... Kind of different there. Don't we understand how that works? Newsflash, hon. Um, well, turns out, kind of, kind of, but no. There are certain laws of physics we can see followed. Uh, for example, a planet like Mercury, and there's some complications with Mercury's orbit, but let's say a planet like Mercury that is very close to the sun, that's going to have to orbit at a much faster rate rate than Earth. Earth orbits once every Earth year. That's what an Earth year is. It is one time around the Sun. Venus's year is, or orbital period, Venus's orbital period is much shorter. It's closer to the Sun. Mercury even shorter. Mars longer than Earth. The further out you get, the longer the orbital period is. So astronomers are thinking, okay, should be the same for galaxies that we see out in the universe the stars and the gas and the material further away from the core of a galaxy will be orbiting at a much lower rate, or at a certain rate compared to stuff a certain amount closer to the galactic core. Well, this astronomer, Vera Rubin, she did some research on some of these galaxies, taking a spectrographic view of the uh, material in the galaxy, and found that that velocity curve that, of how fast stuff is moving further out from the uh, the galactic core, it's moving a lot faster than it should. And you can go read up, up on this. You can there's a Wikipedia page for a galaxy rotation curve. There are some uh, some diagrams, some gifs, animations that give a better idea of uh, what's going on. And it, it, it's some weird stuff. It's weird. Why is this thing not behaving to the way that our physics has understood it to work? There's clearly so much more out there that we have to learn. Stuff that is at this massive scale, and I'm sure there's plenty of stuff even at a smaller scale. And These these raise questions about dark, dark matter, dark energy. Um, it's called dark matter because you, we we can't see it we can't um, interpret it we don't know how to measure it we don't know what it is we don't know if it is any matter that falls within our understanding of matter itself that's that's amazing stuff that's stuff that that gets me excited i know i'm not a physicist i'm not an astronomer i'm not probably not going to go to school for this anytime soon, but it's still, I, I just really love, I really, really love reading about the, the kind of spooky unknown things that are going on in the universe. It's, it's opportunity for discovery, and I want to be around for when cool stuff is discovered and learned about. Anyway, I have a, uh, a list of things that I would love to talk about, uh, besides what I just did, which was a little preemptive, I'm sorry. Um, like the moon, the moon, we see it. We always see the same face of the moon. We talk about the dark side of the moon. The dark side of the moon is not the dark side of the moon. It's the far side of the moon because that side of the moon always faces away from the earth. The moon is tidally locked with earth. So the moon's face that we see that faces earth is always facing earth. Um, That's a neat thing that happens, I think, uh, I think Mercury, yeah, Mercury is tidally locked with the Sun, so that same face of Mercury is just baking in the Sun every hour of every day of, of, yeah, that's pretty fun, um, Pluto, and it's, it's smaller, uh, orbital sibling, I guess, it's part of a, it's part of a system, Pluto and Charon, and they are tidally locked to each other. That's pretty neat. Now, what I love about the moon is that it's the the only other celestial body that we know of that humans have successfully visited, as in person steps foot on the surface of this celestial body. It was the space race that led us there, This the science arms race battle between the Soviet Union and the United States. And you, you can make some arguments about about who won what. Obviously, the Soviets were, in my opinion, very good at, at these satellites and uh, landers, well, to a certain degree. Uh, they were the first ones on Venus. Um, when the United States was doing samples was getting samples from the moon they they sent people up they sent it was the apollo mission send people up play around on the moon drive a little buggy take back a bunch of samples so we can study them take back samples from different parts of the moon so we can study these rocks now i think that's an amazing feat sending human beings out beyond earth not only beyond earth but beyond earth's uh beyond earth's orbit and now you're in orbit around the moon, and you're like human people, and suddenly you're on the other side of the moon from Earth, and you have no communication, and you're alone for like an hour or so, while your spacecraft comes back around, and you are a group of the most lonely people in the universe. That's oh, that's so incredible. Well, the Soviets, they didn't even send people to the moon for their lunar sample returns, they did that with a robot. Now, I will say this opinion. I think sending robots to return samples is your first step. Don't go immediately to sending people. Send a robot. Uh, But of course, that's not what America did. And uh, with people, you need a much larger spacecraft. That's why this uh, Saturn V rocket that ...launched these Apollo missions were so massive. The largest rocket in history up until... ...or the most powerful rocket in history up until the uh, SpaceX's Starship... ...which isn't even complete yet. Um, But you... Just the friggin' scale of it. Meanwhile, the Soviets launch uh, Luna 16... ...an uncrewed lunar mission... ...to the surface of the moon to land and take samples and come back and drop off those samples to Earth. And you didn't even need people. There was a lot less risk. I, I think you, you only returned a small amount of, uh, of, of lunar sample. But without the risk of astronauts... Or in, that, in their case, cosmonauts. Without risking the lives of cosmonauts, you, it just—it's a—it seems like a better deal, in my opinion, uh, to some degree. I mean, if you have a reliable spacecraft, sure, go ahead, go nuts, send people wherever you want. Which, whichever country was sending stuff to the moon—that's for the time it was happening, the '70s, the '60s. Whoa. Back when computers were little dinky craps and you had to like hand-sew calculating modules or or something like that uh, to put into the command module and you know, you don't have uh, super-fast mega processors and transistors that are crazy small. The The relative lack of technological advancement that they had is astonishing when you realize what they were actually able to do. Okay, I love Mars. Mars is a great planet, but I want to talk about Venus. Venus is a fascinating place. It's a very similar size to Earth. Unlike Mars, which is a significantly smaller Venus also has a pretty thick atmosphere. It's an atmosphere of uh, mostly carbon dioxide, and it's very hot. So uh, basically, it's kind of like what Earth will become if we don't get this climate change shit under control. But Venus is also, or was also, very uh, volcanically active. So it probably wasn't aliens on Venus that gave it a runaway greenhouse effect. It was probably volcanoes and stuff. And uh, it's really hot. It's really, really hot in Venus. So to, to land something on Venus and send pictures is an incredibly difficult thing to do. To have electronics that can survive that type of heat and, and that can perform science activities like uh, digging samples, taking images, and sending those images back through this thick, foggy atmosphere back to Earth... It's nuts. It's crazy stuff, and, and this is something that the Soviets were able to do as well. But I think since then, uh, Venus missions have not been super popular. Uh, I, I hope I hope that there's that there's stuff to come though, because it, I think I think Venus could could be a potentially very cool place with a lot of scientific value. Venus us let's talk about Mars the red planet the rusty red dusty planet it's cool it's cool as in it's cold it gets it's cold there you know it looks like a, a big red desert looks like it'll be hot at least in the images but it's pretty cold there's not an active uh, magnetosphere in the way that um, that earth has. Which is basically like the magnetic poles or why you have a compass on Earth that can work. That, that, what that does for Earth is it it blocks a lot of the or protects Earth from a lot of the dangerous radiation coming from the Sun. So the lack of that on Mars means Mars hits a lot of radiation on the surface. Earth's magnetosphere also protects our atmosphere from being blown away by the solar wind. Well, Mars doesn't have that either, so, its atmosphere is largely blown away by the sun, and also Mars just has a smaller size, a smaller gravity than Earth, so it can't really hold that thick of an atmosphere compared to Earth. We can't breathe Mars's atmosphere. It's, it's thin, and there's like a little oxygen relatively, but we can still see the effects of the atmosphere on Mars, which is amazing. There are... Dust devils all the time. There are There is this incredible image from, from orbit of a, uh, like a Mars orbital observer and there is this massive dust devil, this really tall spindly one, and you can see the, the white swirls of the, uh, of the dust devil, but you can also see its shadow cast on the ground and it, it, it's incredible. There have been videos from the surface of Mars, from the rovers, that they've sent back videos of dust devils going across the surface, landers that have used solar panels that get covered up by this Martian dust over time. They've had their panels cleared with dust devils, and every every year, every Martian year or so, I think in the Martian winter, um, usually there are huge planet-wide dust storms, and it's such an amazing phenomenon that, you know, we on Earth have our own weather patterns. We have El Nino years, La Nina years, uh, years of this and that when the climate is a certain way. It It's it pretty much, it seems like every planet that has an atmosphere like this kind of goes through these cycles. And you can look at Earth and you can be a meteorologist and study all this stuff, but in the end, that's not going to fully prepare you for what it's like on other planets. It's all so unique for each planet. It's so weird and wonderful. Mars is just one of those cool places. We can see places on Mars where there's clear evidence that there was running water. There are mud deposits. The Perseverance rover recently... Uh, made it to this area in the Jezero crater that it's exploring that's called the Bacon Strip because from orbit, from the satellite images, it looks like a big, crispy strip of bacon along this, uh, this river delta that they say is compacted mud that has turned into rock over the millions of years. And that stone would be a great place to search for evidence of past life on Mars. Mars did have running water. It did have lakes and oceans and and rivers. But we can't see any any evidence yet of any life that did or may have existed on Mars. I am optimistic that we will find the building blocks of life, hopefully, like uh, amino acids or pieces of... uh, RNA or the chemicals that that make that up. Because, due to a recent discovery, um, believe it was the Hayabusa spacecraft, uh, a Japanese spacecraft that took samples from an asteroid and then returned that to Earth so that we have these fresh, clean samples of asteroids from space while they're in space rather than looking at Meteorites that have landed on Earth and have been burned and stripped away and and uh, affected by the elements here on Earth for however millions of years, and what they found in these samples from these asteroids from space is that they have all like the um, amino acids or something. They have built they they've basically found all the basic quote unquote building blocks of life in various asteroid samples. And to me, that means that it's very possible, very possible. I'd say likely that these chemicals ended up on Mars. Whether they they, they were able to form anything resembling life, I I'm a little skeptical of. But I'd, I'd, that'd be really cool. It's a cool ass place. And, oh, another thing about Mars is Perseverance rover I just mentioned. That's the new one that landed on Mars, um, was it last year? They launched it in 2020. I remember that launch. I mean, I was nervous for that. I was nervous with the James Webb Space Telescope launch. They both went phenomenally. Um, The thing with the Perseverance, when it landed on Mars, it did a cool thing. Okay, well, let let me back up a little bit. Spirit and Opportunity, twin rovers that were sent to Mars in the 2000s, they were a big deal. They landed on Mars with a the, these uh, giant airbags that would inflate as it was coming in through the atmosphere, and it would bounce and roll around and then eventually come to a stop, and then the bags would deflate, the, the craft would unfold, and the rover would emerge from within. You know, that's one way to land it. It doesn't really get you an accurate landing though because of wind and atmosphere and whatever and the bouncing and rolling around once you reach the surface because there's a lot less gravity so there's going to be a lot more bouncing. What they did for Curiosity rover, which is like a a car-sized rover rather than the smaller however small the Spirit and Opportunity rovers are, instead you have a sky crane. The the craft comes in, its heat shield into the atmosphere, they drop that away, and then the, the shield on top of where the rover is, that will deploy a parachute, and that'll slow it down a bunch, and eventually the parachute shell breaks away, and then the rover, with its sky crane attached above it, they come flying down, and they're, they're firing rockets, maneuvering the rover, and, and figuring out where to land, and then eventually it, it it stops, it hovers over the ground, however tall, and then it lowers the rover down on cables, lets the rover land on the ground, releases the rover from its cable clutches, and then the sky crane flies off into the distance to go dispose of itself. Now, if that's not... If that's not one of the most incredible things that that humans have ever been able to do. I I, I don't don't, don't even know what to say. And they did that with Perseverance as well, because it's a very similar design to Curiosity. It's based off of Curiosity, I think. And for this landing, they actually got video of it, like high definition, good frame rate video of this sky crane dropping down Perseverance. Oh, it is beautiful. I, I want to include a bunch of these links in the uh, in the notes for this episode. So hopefully, I'll remember. Hopefully, I I like to think that NASA and JPL have a lot of confidence in their ability to create well performing systems like this that allow us to land very accurately in certain areas autonomously on other celestial bodies. And a lot of those other celestial bodies I like to explore include moons of other planets like Jupiter and Saturn. Now, Jupiter and Saturn are very, very cool, beautiful planets. Uh, They have these, they're just gorgeous. And Saturn with those rings don't even get me started. But you can't land. They're, They're these gassy giants. You know, you can't, you can maybe skim the atmosphere, but there's nowhere to land. There's nowhere to drop down a rover, drive around, and look. But the, there a lot of the moons, well, you, you, very, you very well could. You could drop down a rover. You could drop down something to explore. One of these moons I want to talk about is uh, Titan. It's one of Saturn's moons. It has an atmosphere of uh, mostly nitrogen and methane. Think about that, methane, hydrocarbons in space. And what's even cooler is that it is one of two bodies in our solar system, the other being Earth, that is known to go through cycles of liquids evaporating and raining down from the atmosphere, forming rivers and lakes and bodies of liquid. It's not water on Titan, it's hydrocarbons, it's stuff like methane and ethane. It, it rains gas. Not gas like air, like ga- well, I don't even know what gasoline, what type of hydrocarbons are in that. But basically, it's hydrocarbons that is like water on Titan. Titan has an atmosphere too, and they've sent a probe to Titan that landed on a parachute and took images as it was coming down, and images from the surface. And they're not super high quality images, but the, it, it is otherworldly. It's, um, it's even more otherworldly than Mars, I would say. Because Mars, at least, it, it does kind of look like a desert, rocky. With Titan, it was, like, weird. Yeah, it was rocky, but it was, like, yellow. And things just seemed different. Please, go check that out, too. An interesting concept um, about some of these, about terrestrial worlds in our solar system and beyond the solar system is... Uh, the idea of surface age, like Titan has few craters, which probably means that the surface of Titan is fairly young, like Earth. You don't see a lot of craters on the surface of Earth, and we know that the surface of Earth goes through rapid changing and covering up, you know, you got soil building up, you got wind and rain and water and everything that erodes the surface of the Earth. You got river deltas, you got silt and sand that's moved. It's... It's a... Volcanism as well. It's another thing that that can uh, clear up surfaces of planets. So you can understand that Earth would have a geologically young surface. Uh, The same is true of of Titan and Venus. So you could say that there is some uh, activity going on in the atmosphere, in the geology, of these celestial bodies, which is pretty cool. Let's talk about another moon. Let's talk about Io. That's a moon of Jupiter. It's very volcanically active, like a lot. And part of this is because it, it gets it gets yanked around. It gets pulled by, by the gravity of Jupiter, which um, in the way that the moon pulls on our oceans and creates tides, uh, Io kind of gets that, uh, but for the whole planet. is in The other moons that orbit Jupiter have this influence on Io as well. So Io is just being s- s- punched and smushified and the it makes it, or it helps it be really volcanically active. And it is a gorgeous moon. All these greens and yellows and these massive holes of lava or magma or whatever the hell it is, or these pits of... Of blackness there are a few pictures of the surface of Io that you need to see I'll include those in the uh, the show notes as well now let's talk about everybody's favorite moon besides our moon I want to talk about Europa Um, it might be the coolest I still am more partial to Io but Europa is easily the second coolest Uh, similar to Io it's being pulled around Uh, by gravitational influences, but instead of having volcanic activity, Europa has uh, cryovolcanic activity. It's got these geysers of water and ice from its icy surface that cracks and splits as it's being pulled by these gravitational influences. The surface of Io is cracked and scarred, but icy and beautiful. There are these deep red stripes we don't know where the red comes from why is it red is it possible that there was a big crack in the ice and some secret life living on its subsurface oceans perhaps made a byproduct like our um our iron oxidizing bacteria that we have on earth and perhaps that red is some evidence of life perhaps not i'm willing to bet not but Still, is very cool. We got um, a new mission that's being worked on for Europa, Europa Clipper. It's going there to to kind of orbit near Europa and take a lot of good images of its surface in order to find a great place to land for future missions. And when you land on Europa, what are you going to do? You're going to land on the ice and just sit there? Nuh-uh, hun. You are going to drill or melt your way through the ice to the subsurface oceans and study those oceans and that is exciting imagine getting images from that ocean or like getting all the way down and seeing the the undersea volcanoes and and thermal vents on another planet and potentially see life or even just signs of life building blocks or chemicals something oh man i hope i'm i hope i'm still around I hope I'm still around when we we punch through Europa's surface. But another thing about Europa, you don't even have to land there to get certain samples of the, the seas underneath its surface. Because Europa is geysering water up into space, if you get something orbiting around Europa just right, it can cross paths with those geyser plumes and collect samples. We've sort of done this with comets. There was, I think it was a Stardust mission. They used aerogels to uh, on this, um, this big paddle-like appendage that comes out of the spacecraft as they fly through this comet's tail to collect bits of the comet and of the dust and the gas that get embedded in the aerogel, and it worked. It, it, it's really cool. Regardless, I, I would love to see... Europa get studied hard okay I know I kind of didn't want to talk about Jupiter and Saturn but I do want to talk about Uranus and Neptune these planets really I think and I think a lot will agree they don't get they don't get a lot of attention because I mean they're just so far away the only time we got good images of them though the first time I think was um, the Voyager spacecraft those were spacecraft we launched in the 70s to explore these outer reaches of the solar system, and the planets were aligned perfectly where they launched them to get these gravitational assists off of boom, Saturn, boom, or boom, Jupiter, boom, Saturn, whichever, Uranus or Neptune, and then the other one, and then fly out in beyond the solar system. And they sent back these stunning images of these blue blue planets that they thought you know these are gas giants no they're ice giants the the ices these volatiles that make up this icy slushy weird atmosphere surface i don't even know how how to begin to even think about thinking about these planets every 10 years a bunch of science nerds come together and they think about what in terms of space missions do they think uh, should be the priorities for the next 10 years. And they did this recently. It's like a decadal survey. Uh, At this recent one, they said Uranus and Neptune. And everyone's like, I agree. So I expect in the next 20 years, hopefully, we'll see some great science, some wonderful images come out of that. Uh, Uranus, that's the closer one. Um, That planet is on its side. You know how Earth has an axis, and maybe you'll learn this in school, that the axis does not point straight up and down relative to, like, the orbital plane of the solar system. It's kind of tilted, which gives Earth its its seasons. Uh, Every planet kind of has a bit of a tilt like that. Venus actually is totally upside down, so it's... It's spinning the other way. So instead of the sun rising in the east setting in the west, it would rise in the west and set in the east on Venus. Now with Uranus, that's like 90 degrees. It's tilted 90 degrees. So at some points in its orbit, its polar axis will point at the Sun. And that's weird. Why, why would a planet why would a planet form that way if, if planets are based on the way we understand planets to form, in the solar in solar systems, um, all all the planets at first at least should have the same rotation direction, the same axis, and then over time, different things in the solar system, like interlopers from interstellar space or large enough comets or moons or even collisions, can tilt these planets. So, for instance. Um, Earth, I don't know what caused Earth to tilt, but just as an example, the early collision um, of early, early Earth in its formation that created the moon, you know, that could have done it. That was a very large thing that smacked into into the Earth, and a bunch of blobs went out, and it made the moon, and now Earth is tilted. Okay, so what the heck would have caused Uranus to go through that? That's a big mystery. Um... A good example of that actually of um, things being tipped over and their axis being all goofed is the supermassive black hole at the center of our of our galaxy. I think uh, it's not it's not its axis is not aligned with the orbital plane of the galaxy. It is kind of tilted and there there could be a variety of reasons for this. It could be that's just the way it is. I doubt it, but uh, some people are saying, well, it could be from earlier collisions with other galaxies, and we have these um, these uh, clouds of gas and shit outside of our galaxy that are evidence of early galactic collisions. Like these, these are smaller galaxies that the Milky Way has has eaten up, and now the black hole at the center, because of those collisions and the interactions, its uh, its axis is not aligned with the orbital plane of the galaxy. And I know I, I kind of went off topic there from Uranus and Neptune. I just get really excited about um, space. Uh, but this brings me to the next segment. What else is out there beyond the solar system? Literally everything. The, the scale of it is so huge. I mean, the nearest star, Proxima Centauri, I don't know how far away that is, Proxima Centauri. It is, as far as I know, I think it's the nearest known star to the sun. And it is 4.2 light years away. Yeah, it, it takes 4.25 years for the light from this star to reach our sun. Man, that's a long distance. Think about how fast light moves. And then add, like, multiply that by four in a quarter years, holy moly. But that's the nearest star. We're, we're seeing the star not as it is quote unquote now, we're seeing it as it was supposedly four years ago. And this is where I, I start to get a little, a little confused about uh, terminology and stuff in terms of physics and the scale of things in the universe. So if the light we're seeing from Proxima Centauri is four years old, we're seeing the star as it was four years ago, what's, what's why, what's the point in, in saying how it was four years ago? Is that, is that not now? Yeah, it might not be at the same timestamp or whatever, uh, in time, but. Our understanding of, of time and space-time and gravity, it's all mucked up anyway, so does it even matter? Maybe. Not for me to decide. That didn't make any sense, but I'm going to go with it. But as I was saying at the beginning of the episode, the, the bigger things get the weirder stuff seems. Galaxies with their dark matter that seem to be giving galaxies this extra mass that allows... Material further away from the galactic center to orbit at speeds. They shouldn't be going as fast as Who what we just don't know we don't know what that is Even within our solar system Light from the Sun takes eight minutes to get here Uh, Gravity also kind of moves at that speed so if the Sun were to just disappear At the same time, nothing would happen to Earth until eight minutes later when suddenly it gets really cold and our planet starts going off into the darkness. And that makes me wonder, I I can understand. I can understand photons uh, suddenly having the source and then the sun disappears and suddenly no more photons are coming out. But they're still traveling. It'll take them eight minutes to get there and then done. But gravity... How, how, how does gravity work like that? Why does gravity seem to work at the speed of light? We don't have a fundamental particle to uh, represent the force of gravity. Gravity has no place in the standard model. How do we handle that? And that's just on the small scale. That's just with, within our solar system. Can, to communicate to a spacecraft on, on Mars Depending on the position of Earth and Mars relative to each other, relative to each other, it could take between five and twenty minutes to communicate. So, getting people on on Mars, they're going to need to be pretty self-sufficient. They're going to need to know exactly what they're doing with with um, little real-time command from Earth. And, and then there's the Dyson sphere, um, a, a hypothetical structure around a star that is meant to harvest energy from that star kind of like solar panels except basically just a sphere of solar panels pointing inwards towards the sun and then you kind of live on that sphere around the sun getting all your energy from the sun and it's much more efficient but I just don't see how that's practical because I'm no expert I'm no mechanical engineer, or material scientist, or astrobiologist, or anything like that. I don't even understand really the physics of it. But at two opposite ends of this sphere, it takes minutes of time from light to get from one end to the other. And that's just light. How does a stress on one side of that sphere propagate throughout the whole system? Would that tear the whole sphere apart? Like, what would happen? And I can't wrap my head around that. Um, I mean, I I sort of can, but I can't wrap my head around the the consequences of it, like what what would actually happen. Let's say you get a Dyson sphere even bigger. Let's say you get it around a star cluster, or you get it around a whole galaxy, or a a supermassive black hole. I don't know why you'd do that. it just doesn't seem stable. It doesn't seem like it would work. And Dyson spheres probably don't work, which is why we haven't seen any. Because aliens, were they figured it out, they tried it, like, nah, this ain't gonna work. And so they done whatever. I don't know what the aliens have done. I don't even know if there are any. I want to talk about the speed of light thing for a sec again. Maybe you've heard the thing, you've seen the movie Interstellar, I haven't seen it, but you're closer to a black hole. Time will move differently like the outside world will move faster and it'll just zip by the closer you are to a black hole and you're sitting there closer to the black hole like why is time why is time so slow here in a way that i i learned to uh to think about it. it took me a while um man it's really you can't even explain it in words you have space time you have a 3d field that is space-time, and you have these ticks that divide it up. Not ticks like the bug, but ticks as in, like, um, marks on a scale, on, on, a, on a line, on a bar of a graph. He said it's like 3D, and you place a black hole in there, and because of um, the way you can visualize gravity in a 3D space-time field, uh, those those ticks kind of move in and space-time is more condensed closer to that black hole. And the speed of light in space-time is constant. Light moves between two ticks in space-time. It takes the same amount of time. So, if you have more condensed space-time and you are sitting outside of that condensed space-time, but you're looking in at it and you're watching a photon kind of move in through that condensed space-time, that photon is gonna seem to slow down because it takes... It needs to slow down in order to spend the same amount of time moving between each tick or something like that. So from your perspective, it just goes slow. But from the photon's perspective, it's still going the same constant speed of light because it's going this certain distance, this specific distance in a certain amount of time. However, from your perspective, that distance is, it, it is um, compressed. So it, it looks like it's going slower. That makes no sense. I'm realizing that makes no sense and I'm very sorry that uh, I had to say that. I'm sorry for any potential future employers that may listen to this and think, what the heck is this guy doing? He is an embarrassment to himself, to the space and science community. And to to that, I say this. Look, I'm I'm trying my best. I spend a lot of my time at the end of the day when I'm not making dinner or cleaning or just goofing around. You know what I'm doing? I'm sitting around and I'm watching... videos and documentaries about space and space travel and what's out there and what we have to discover and the news and space uh, astronomy science journalists. it's, It's fascinating stuff. I can't get enough of it. This is my dream. And for you to sit there and think, what is this guy doing? He's so dumb. I'm the kind of people you need. I'm someone who holds a genuine curiosity in this. And you want me to be some hoity-toity fancy, like, oh, I went to Harvard for astrobiology, therefore I'm an expert in the field. Why not some random computer guy who just wants to, like, help build rovers and be passionate about it who can do that? You know, I don't want to lead a project. I don't want to say, I am going to justify the budget to go into this. I don't want to do that. I want someone to say, here's what the budget's going to. Here's a problem, you're an engineer, you solve it. That's what I want to do. Sorry for that tangent. I I promise I took my meds today, but I feel like I'm just totally off my meds. It's weird. Now, let's kind of step away from the realm of physics and physics known. Let's talk about the unknown. And I don't mean the unknown like dark matter. I mean unknown UFOs, UAPs. And... Why do I bring that in an episode about space? Well, not necessarily because aliens. Not necessarily because we see them in space. I think a lot of the credible UFO and UAP sightings have been within Earth and the atmosphere. The the relatively recent leaks of these Navy pilot videos where they are, are... are chasing this tic tac, or the this weird gimbling thing in the sky, it, oh, and then the navy comes out. like, yep, these are legit. We don't know what these things are. That both terrifies and excites me immensely. It terrifies me because these could be secret weapons of another nation. That is testing stuff and taunting the United States or it's even higher-level secret US projects that like nobody knows about Um, and Those people who know about it can't come forward and be like yeah guys Stop stop sharing this stuff because it's a secret because or Or it could be something totally natural or uh, I think one of my favorite explanations is that it's humans from the future or something like that. And they they have come to, to spread a message or to change something. And here it is. There are reports um, that UFO sightings and UAP sightings near uh, nuclear reactors and nuclear missile sites and nuclear weaponry uh, have coincided with weird mishappenings with these systems. I I think uh, I read about one Russian general who was like, yeah, we saw UAP and, like, they turned on our nuke systems or they turned off our nuke systems or something like that. These things coincide with messing with nuclear technology. Now, my mind goes to, okay, aliens don't like nukes or are trying to warn us about nukes or trying to instigate nuclear war. Aliens and nukes. Okay, so, well, what is a noticeable early alien event that occurred within early uh, nuclear testing times? You have the uh, the Trinity, the Trinity nuclear weapon test, which occurred in nineteen forty five, and you got the Roswell incident, in nineteen forty seven. Here is my totally off the cuff, stupid. Theory about this. Alright, the US tests the nuke, and this is a massive um, releasing of these primordial subatomic forces in this massive blast of energy, and this creates certain uh, particles, certain uh, rarish particles that do occur naturally but uh, are not common. And if Let's say it's neutrinos or something, and suddenly this Trinity test blasts these neutrinos out from Earth into space. And aliens pick up and they're like, oh, there's neutrinos coming from this sector, near this star, on this planet. That's friggin' weird. We need to go investigate. So they send a probe down or or one of their guys, and around 1947, he crashes in New Mexico. Now, get this. The location of the Trinity Blast is in New Mexico. Just a four-hour drive outside of Roswell. Pretty close by. Coincidence? Probably. Something suspicious? I believe so. Something that's actually aliens? I doubt it. But, if it is aliens, I certainly hope that their message is, guys, nukes are bad. You're gonna end up killing everybody and each other a lot, and we don't want to see you guys do that. We think you have potential. So we're going to try to nudge you in the right direction um, w- without getting involved. You know, prime directive and all that. Or an alternative is that they're like, we, <laughs> dude, what if we mess up their nukes? I think we can get these fuckers to blow each other up. And that would suck because I don't really want to die. If I was going to die I'd rather die like at the epicenter of a nuclear blast therefore it's instantaneous I am vaporized not a trace of me just gone to become one with the universe but I hope that doesn't happen cuz that that would that would suck <sighs> aliens planets galaxies black holes things outside let's zoom let's zoom back in let's get let's get close to home again I want I want to talk about something I I said at the beginning about humans and how much we've affected our planet I hope that I've gotten across my point that there's so much out there there's so much beyond just this little ball of green and blue and rock there's so much to learn there's so much missing from our our understanding of the way the universe works. And here we are sitting here trying to figure it all out, trying not to let ourselves die because of our own actions that we didn't know were so bad and that we were lied to about. Man, humans are incredibly powerful. We've been around for hundreds of thousands of years. The The whole homo genus, been around for like a million years. I kind of feel like it's our duty to protect ourselves and our planet and life as we know it and to try to understand what we can about the universe and unlock its secrets and see if there really is something more. Something more to existence. Something more to life. Or maybe even discover that there's nothing to life at all. And that we are but a drop in the bucket, a flash in the pan, and that we did our darndest to find a reason, and, and that's really all that matters. I'm sorry if all that is disjointed and a little disorganized and kind of just a stream of consciousness, but hey, that's what the podcast is about. I hope you all had a good spring, you know, the, the time between uh, March and now, pretty much, when I uh, finally get this done. I'm, I'm still hanging in there, you know, I've, I've, uh, I've gone through both starting a relationship and a breakup, and things are, are strange, and I have a lot that I've been thinking about, thinking about what I'm capable of, thinking about what I want, and I'm have I'm having a, I'm having a good time, overall, I think, I know it might not sound like it, but th- this is... This is where things really begin for me. I'll do my best to uh, upload at a fairly regular rate, but I cannot promise because it's kind of hard coming up with episode topics now. That isn't something that I have to study or, or do a bunch of like research for, and I don't want to do that. I kind of just want to sit down and talk about something that I know a little bit about or just something that, something that I want to talk about. I I know those topics will, they will cross my mind, I will come up with them, they just might be uh, a little fewer and further between than, say, the first six episodes of this show. That being said, you can find me at Twitter, Instagram, at Nautilus Studios, or my website nautilusstudios.com, that's N-A-U-T-I-L-U-S-T-U-D-I-O-S. I've been Jacob. You have been wonderful. Have a wonderful time. Goodbye.